Hey, music lovers, the Cannamom Show podcast in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at lampkinguitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N-Guitars.com If you're a cannabis business owner looking to expand into new markets and need guidance and support you can trust, consider Collateral Base a group that has done it before in multiple merit-based and limited market states. Collateral Base was founded by an experienced cannabis attorney with highly educated consultants with master's degrees and years of experience in the cannabis industry. The Collateral Base team is confident they know cannabis licensing better than any of their peers. And I encourage you to see for yourself. It just takes one phone call. If you're ready to expand your cannabis business into new limited markets, contact Collateral Base today at 309-306-1095. That's 309-306-1095. Or visit collateralbase.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything is Personal. I'm super excited to have this guest on because we're going to geek out on some music, which you guys know that I love. I want to introduce Mr. Josh Feldstein, who is the leader of the Verve Jazz Ensemble. Thank you for joining. Oh, leader and drummer. I forgot. You got to play, you gotta <laughs> the, play the, an instrument to be in the band. The, the lead drummer. I, I say this because I went to see Elton John and he had several drummers. And, and I was trying to figure out who's the lead drummer because he has a, a drummer. There's, a, there's, I would say, other percussionists that are mm. on stage with him. So that's why I say that. Well, uh, my band's got one drummer. I'm that guy. <laughs> that's cool. So, uh, Josh, thank you for joining. And uh, before we get started, I want to get a, a really good understanding of like sort of your background. Where did you grow up? Well, as you can probably discern from my very subtle New York accent, uh, New York City. I was born in Manhattan and then uh, raised in the city in Queens. Uh, and Manhattan were two boroughs that I grew up in. And uh, I spent uh, most of the first uh, 25, almost 30 years uh, in the city. Uh, I went to uh, Bayside High School. I uh, grew up in, in Bayside, Queens. Uh, I went to Queens College for my undergraduate degree. So uh, I'm, I'm a city kid. Got it. And as far as family goes, were your uh, your parents uh, together? Did you have siblings? Like, I, I just how did you grow up? Because New York is an interesting place to grow up, and it's a big difference between going, you know, Manhattan and where Manhattan 
Lower East Side, and then Queens is is different as well. Upper West Side, uh, West End Avenue, uh, and Ninety uh, Sixth Street. I went to uh, PS Seventy Five, which is now a magnet school uh, in Manhattan. So uh, Upper West Side, uh, and then when I was nine, uh, mom, dad, uh, two younger uh, sibs, uh, brother and sister, uh, the five of us schlepped to uh, to Bayside. And it was it was total culture shock, Lynn. It was it was not it was not a smooth transition, but we did our our time, hard time in Bayside. <laughs> uh, made the adjustment, uh, and then uh, uh, through Bayside High School, uh, got deeply into uh, to music. Uh, and for me, the journey started when I was about eleven. Uh, I was uh, taking lessons uh, with community drummer. And uh, I, I enjoyed it, you know, but I, I wasn't really into practicing. I was, I was not uh, focused enough. And one day, the, uh, the, the, the teacher came to me. His name was Brad. And Brad said to me, you know, Josh, your style reminds me of, of a drummer. His name is Gene Krupa. And, and you sound a lot like Gene Krupa. I said, you think I sound like <laughs> Gene Krupa? Wow. Really? Gene Krupa? I said, Who's Gene Krupa? <laughs> so the next session, he brought me some Gene Krupa music. And Len, to be honest with you, I didn't sound like Gene Krupa. I don't know what he was telling me. But I really liked what I heard. And I thought, well, if, if, if he thinks that I sound like that, then that's, that's what I want. What was it? Was it a certain swing was there a certain style that because obviously you gene krupa legendary and and played a lot longer than you did at that point but maybe there's a taste of something that he heard in your your style uh wise that he said maybe reminded him of that because well, you know you didn't he didn't say john bonham right he didn't say the you know so it's <laughs> no he said krupa right and, and and to be honest with you i cannot answer that question but for whatever the reason, you know, that's what he said. But the one thing that was very interesting is that I really dug what I heard. I liked it. And I liked the music. I liked the jazz. And I thought, wow, this is really cool stuff. And I was only 11 and I really, really liked it. So there was, a, there was an emotional connection immediately. And, you know, with Krupa, you, he was a big guy on the toms. His his style wasn't super complicated. A lot of lot of doubles and singles, and you know you could really understand what he was doing. A lot of very flamboyant, a lot of energy. But um, uh, musically, musically as a drummer, he was uh, um, very varied in terms of uh, his his snare work, his toms. The musicality of what he did, he was flamboyant. Um, there were a lot of different components of, of Gene's playing. And he swung like hell. I yeah. mean, he just swung like hell. And, and I really dug it. So that was my, that was my jumping off point. Did, did, were, did you come from a musical family? Were your parents musical? Did they play music in the house? Or, uh, not, not at all. My, my mother was a, an actress, actually, a, a struggling actress. My father worked in uh, television, so I, I had uh, a background in the arts. Mm -hmm. I was exposed to music as a kid. Uh, I went to, a, I think it was a Dal Crow's music school in New York City thing when I was maybe five or six, piano and 
that kind of stuff. And I enjoyed it. I just liked it. But I, I wasn't a, I, I wasn't a, a music geek at, mm-hmm. at, at all up until the point where I got hooked into Krupa and jazz. And then I discovered big bands and I really liked big band drumming. And then from that point, I discovered and learned about the various drummers and styles and eras. And, and it all sort of opened up. But not coming from a musical family, do you remember like your earliest musical memories were, were like you're getting together and, and your parents play a record or, or, or was it just you started drumming, like you started getting lessons. What was the impetus for that? I guess I was just too uh, kinetic to, uh, <laughs> you know. This kid's got energy, man. He's playing with his fork and knives during dinner. We got to get him it is, something. You know, I'd run through the house and I'd jump on the, you know, the, the door jams and do pull-ups. I mean, I was just, you know, I was that kid. So dr- drumming apparently worked for me. I had, the, I had, the, I had the, the energy for it. But what I didn't have, and I regret, was I didn't have the guidance. I didn't have the focus. I sincerely wish that I had come from a family where m- one of my parents was a musician who could have said, now here's the way you approach practice. This is how to make practice fun. This is how you learn how to um, uh, grow as a musician. This is how you listen to things and apply them. I didn't have any of that. So I wasted effectively a lot of time um, because I didn't have that guidance. But what I ended up doing is getting hooked up with the group uh, in school, in junior high school, I played in the junior high school band. They had a jazz group. And because I was the drummer that liked jazz, we played jazz. And everybody else would, would you know, play jazz, uh, saxophonists and so yeah. forth. And um, it, it became uh, a little bit of a, uh, a small group of musicians that I hung with junior high school. And then in high school, I met better musicians were also interested in drumming some seriously and practice. And then, then I started to realize, ah, there's a lot to this. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because, well, first of all, I, I have a technical question for you. Cause I, I think my audience wants to know, because I've been asked this question uh, lots of times when I go see a lot of music, all kinds of different genres. This, and people say jazz drummers, holder sticks differently you you're actually holding it and 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 drumming yeah, not, not match grip you, ex- what's the terminology for that matched grip is when the left hand and the right hand have the same grip uh, a, a a jazz drummer or a snare drummer will use a a traditional grip with a grip with the right hand and the left hand is completely different just snapping your your wrist basically uh, side to side with i don't have a stick motion. near me but it, you put the stick in here and, and, right. and this moves this way the left yep. hand and the right hand is this so right. it's this the reason for it is that back in the day the, the snare drummer had a, a sling over his shoulder and the and the snare would sit this way so you couldn't drum like this so they had oh. to figure out a way with with the drum this way you have to you would play with the left hand this way and the right hand this way so that you could hit a drum on a 45 degree angle hanging around hanging over your shoulder that i've never knew that thank you i because I, I i can go home now i'm done yeah it's that's it drop the money nice <laughs> no because that's what i was trying to figure out obviously you you can always tell from a technique standpoint that you know somebody has that classical uh, jazz uh, training when when they do that but i never knew the reason why that that makes sense um so 
you talked about practice and uh, there's a movie that came out a few years ago, Whiplash, right? So I wanted to, <laughs> I want to kind of engage with how realistic is that type of, uh, you know, I guess, relationship with your jazz uh, instructor and the importance of practice. Because I also have the, the flip side of that because I'm a fan of Questlove. He's from Philly and uh, Amir, I'm from Philly. And I used to see, you know, Amir play like in small little venues, just like drumming. And, and he came from a musical family. It was always about practice, really, really tight. I'm not sure if it actually helped him become a great drummer. I don't know what, what you feel, but it's, it's a, he felt differently about practice and create these rituals for himself than, you know, being forced into practice like, like the, the movie depicted. So I want to kind of get, and since you brought that up, I want to kind of get your, your thoughts on that. All kidding aside, uh, the, you know, the whiplash scene is, as far as I'm concerned, it, it, it probably exists, you know, to some degree, but that's not, that's not cool. I mean, that's, that's not my space and, and I don't dig that. And, you know, that, that doesn't work for me or anybody that I know. Um, so that's drama and, and, and Hollywood and all that. What, 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 what is real is that most musicians are, uh, to some degree, tender souls, you know, and, and there really has got to be a love and a nurturing and a support. Uh, and the idea of practice um, is something that takes maturity to really grow into. I didn't discover it until I was older. Uh, when I was in my you know, teens or even early 20s, uh, it, it eluded me. I looked at it as boring. But you get to a certain point with the instrument where the challenge of practicing what you cannot do well is the journey to becoming a better and better musician. Mm -hmm. And when a musician realizes that by working on their weaknesses as a musician, the quality of their performance, their recording, their technique, their musicality, it all starts to grow exponentially, then they can't wait to work on things that they can't do well. As opposed to, as a kid, playing the same thing you know over and over and over and over because you know it and you never go anywhere. And that's how people just become stuck. And, you know, five years later, they sound exactly the same. Yeah, you got to challenge yourself to be a little bit better than you were. But I think what happens a lot of times, and, you know, I, I had some, uh, some teachers, I try to play the sax. I say I try because... I took lessons, but you know, I never really, and the bass guitar, but it's this, it's this stretch. If a, if a, a teacher would tell me you have to do something that's so completely outside of my comfort level, it becomes too challenging and I want to recoil back. But if it's just a little bit above that, now I strive to improve myself. And I think that there's a huge difference between how people, and you're right about inspiration, this inspiration of, uh, and, and this, uh, this, positive reinforcement all the time it makes you want to do better and when you know when teachers don't do that like it, i had the same thing in martial arts it was a, there was a lot of uh, uh when i was taking martial arts a lot of instruction that was very critical and it, it made me not want to pursue anymore so i i think that makes total sense uh you know what you're saying your approach uh to to practices 
quick, quick comment. So I, I completely align with, with your perspective. And I also studied martial arts for many years. Uh, and so one of the things that uh, the drums provides, you can do this with other instruments too, but you have many, many notes uh, that you can slow down and you can play in small groups. So if you take something that is in the aggregate, fast and complicated and requires a certain level of technique that you don't have, let's say, as a, a learner, you say, okay, I'd like to be able to play this particular motif. And, you know, it's a, it's a fill from XYZ drummer. You like that. But you don't have the technique to do it. So what you do is you take it, you break it down into little pieces and you say, okay, let's play the first three notes and get that done. Then let's play the fourth, fifth, and sixth notes and get that down in sequence. And then you start work at a very slow tempo and you start working on things in bits and bites. And over time, you put the pieces together. The technique starts to get more fluid. The brain starts to get the alignment. And a week, a month, a year, whatever later, you can play something that you couldn't play the first time you looked. They said, this is impossible. A year later, you're doing it. Yeah. No, it makes total sense. It's, and it's a metaphor for in life, too. It's exactly what you should do. People get overly anxious about something that's so huge and you got to chunk in little pieces and put all those pieces together. I, I think it's a beautiful way to approach things. Um, do drummers need to know how to read notes and are drummer notes the w different than like in other musicians, like a piano player's notes? Well, read music. I, I meant quarter notes, eighth notes, triplets, 16th notes, 32nd notes, rests, you know, yes, all that's the same. A note is a note, but we're not playing melody we're playing uh rhythm and so the different notes are on different lines relating to different drums or cymbals hi-hat whatever the case may be so looking at drum music you're looking at right hand left hand right foot left foot different drums which is the orchestration of the of the sound as opposed to a saxophone where you're playing scales and whatever piano etc so that's the difference yeah and it, are you in sync with the rhythm like is is the is the key to be sort of in sync with the bass player and and play like that and i know jazz is a little different because there's there's improvisation that that happens i want to get into that but i, I just for my audience because I've had these conversations with many people like this is your rhythm section. You see the drummer is vibing off the bass player and there's a certain connection there. And then I, I other like singers, they say, you know what? I'm going to sing to the rhythm section, not the guitar player and vice versa. Uh, and I know it's not a, a jazz thing, but just, just to kind of get an understanding of how, how the structure is put together with the, with the rhythm section versus, uh, you know, the, the other uh, members of the band. The drummer defines the genre of the song. So if the drummer plays a rock groove or a Latin groove or a jazz groove, it's a rock or a Latin or a jazz song. There's, that's the way that goes. So that's on the drummer. The drummer defines effectively what the genre is going to be of the tune. Um, and I'm talking, never talking in absolutes because there's always, you know, somebody's going, but you sure. could, you know, I, I know, I know, but I'm just talking, you know, let, 
let's be let's be realistic. The drummer and the bassist, from the standpoint of the of the the tempo of the of the rhythm, they've got to be locked in. Otherwise, the whole thing goes wonky. Mm -hmm. So the drummer and the bassist are going to be listening very very closely because that's the pulse. That's the pulse. That's the pulse. When the drummer and the bassist have that in sync and it's happening, the drummer or the bassist or the pianist or anybody has the flexibility to move off the tempo slightly or around it or do whatever they want because they know exactly where the one is. They know where the beat is, right? As long as that's solid and everybody knows it's solid, everybody else can play to it or around it. And it's cool because they know where the pulse is. Thank you for explaining that. that. That makes so much sense. All right, so let's go back to the story. You're playing in the high school band, and uh, it is your desire at that point to be a professional musician, or and and then the second follow up to that is, how do your family feel about that? If that's the case, since they were not, you know, musicians who came from that. Well, that's why I didn't become a professional <laughs> musician because I had a buddy of mine, very close friend. In high school, phenomenal drummer. He was an instructor. He was unbelievable. He got up at five o'clock in the morning every day and practiced. You know, he would put on Buddy Rich records and, you know, keep up with them. He was amazing. And he landed a job, Lynn, at the age of 17. He was the pit drummer for the uh, a Broadway show at the time. He landed a Broadway show job at 17. Well, he was, you know, really proud of himself and this and that. But you could tell inside that there was a little bit of doubt, you know, deep down in there. Because this is a lot to ask of a 17-year-old kid. He had the chops, but he didn't have the maturity. And about two weeks before opening, he didn't have a good rehearsal one day. He got nervous. And they let him go. Hmm. And it pretty much shattered him. And I looked at this, and I, I, I mean, this was not my, I couldn't do this. And I looked at this and I thought to myself, that's what you have to deal with as a professional musician. You've got to really, really, really be good. And you really have to have your crap together. Yeah. And I was smart enough to realize that I wasn't there. So I approached music for love, but I did not go into it as a career. I didn't have enough colleagues, family members, other people who were established in the business who could get you an opportunity where you could learn on the job and mistakes were allowed to a degree, but you were able to grow into it. If you didn't have that opening and you had to do it through the front door, you better know what you're doing. So I learned that lesson and that's what said, okay, no, I'm going to take a different path. And I didn't actually decide to form my group until, you know, more than 10 years later. And I began playing in, in Connecticut with a group of really good local jazz musicians. And it was just for fun. I had no vision of recording records or national bookings. Uh, that wasn't where my head was at. My, my head at the time was at, I loved jazz. I was a jazz drummer. I found these cats who were really good players. We started playing. 
and the bookings came. We were playing country clubs, restaurants, and all kinds of stuff. And we show up and 50, 60, 80 people would come every time we played. We said, oh, we've got something here. And, and that was the beginning for me. But I, I didn't do it the other way because, ugh, no. And But during that time, uh, were you practicing still? And were you practicing with those uh, musicians uh, on an ongoing basis? Because everybody had other day jobs, I'm assuming. I was practicing on my own. I was intermittently taking lessons, uh, but I, I didn't have anything formal in my mind. When I came across these guys, uh, I was a little older than they were, and I introduced myself, and I said, you guys want to play? You guys are awesome musicians. And they said, well, we're looking for a really good jazz drummer. You know, let, let's see if we can get something together. So I was able to book some some gigs, and the rest of it sort of happened. Uh, but during the period where I wasn't playing regularly, I toured for a short period of time with a local big band. Uh, I did some of that. I took lessons. I continued playing on my own. I played records. I played a music, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But I didn't have anything more formal going on. Once we established the Verve Jazz Ensemble yeah. with these other guys, then it became a thing and it began to have some to get some traction. And that was quite accidental, to be honest. Did you get to experience jazz at the time? Like, were, were you going out to see shows and players? And you know, what was what was going on during that time? Okay, that's a, and I'm assuming in New York. Great, it's a great question. I'm glad you asked because I just sort of blew past that entire part of my history. So growing up in New York City, I had access to the best of the best. I took advantage of it. So I would go into Manhattan. Uh, I had an opportunity to see Buddy play live many times. Uh, Philly Joe Jones, Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, uh, you know, Elvin, you, you know, you, the Count Basie big band, uh, Woody Herman. They, everything was happening back in the day. And, and, you know, you could listen to everybody and anybody. And, then you had the great instrumentalists and you had guys like Stan Getz and um, uh, my God, I, I just, I literally could, could name a, a who's who of, of who you could go see at any given time. And that was, that was my uh, learning laboratory. Every Thursday uh, at a place called the West End on West End Avenue, excuse me, it was on Broadway and 113th Street. Uh, Joe Jones was still alive and he was playing with a group called the Countsman. Now Joe was Count Basie's original drummer. And at the time he was an old man. He was at the end of his and the end of his career. But he'd play at this at this cafe and the place was full. And in between sets he'd hang out at the table. And we had a chance to sit and talk to Joe. And my buddy knew his son. We were friends and we hung out together. Land. I had a chance to hang out with Joe Jones. It's amazing. That, you know, that was like that was my education. So it was very inspirational in, in, in that in that sense. So that's that was my grounding. Yeah, and and then you know hanging out and being in the culture. Like I look at jazz as yes, it's music and it may I love jazz, amazing music. But there's a certain culture to jazz that is like different than any other. I mean, blues kind of comes close culturally, but but not the same. And I, I think. We talked before, I mentioned that I'm from Philly and I used to go to this place called 
Ortlieb's Jazz House in, in Philly. I think there's a new version of it, but it's not the same. It used to be tied to a brewery, and this guy used to own it. And old musicians or just jam sessions would come up, and people would come in and and you know have a kind of a quick conversation, like, "All right, do you know? You know, let's let's go." And then it was just such an amazing, amazing time. And it was this culture of you know people smoking cigars, having a little bit of whiskey, you know, a little bit of cannabis uh, here and there as part of the, uh, of the culture too. And I don't, I don't know if this exists anymore. Like I live in LA and the, the jazz scene is sort of, it's not really here uh, the way, I mean, there are a few places, but are very formal Like you go out, it's two drink minimum, you see a stage, but that, that culture doesn't exist. It, do you see the same thing happening like in New York and other places? What's going on with the actual jazz culture? It, it's, it's, really uh, evaporated to a very large degree, especially post-pandemic. Uh, 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 you know, you've got the village vanguard uh, in, the, in, the, in the village, uh, and you've got uh, Dizzy's uh, Club Coca-Cola, and you've got some work that's being done, uh, a few other groups, and Wynton Marsalis and, and, and his organization, uh, Jazz at Lincoln Center. Uh, and then you've got what's happened to Juilliard and, you know, you've got, you've got a couple of small, you know, clubs, uh, in, in New York city, but the days of, of what you described, that's, that's gone, man. That's gone. That's really gone. It's a, it's a whole different scene. Um, I, I'm very fortunate to, to study my, my drum instructor now is, uh, man named John Riley. And uh, John is a very, very well-known uh, jazz uh, instructor, drummer, and he runs the um, uh, drum program uh, at uh, the Manhattan School of Music in, uh, in Harlem. And uh, John, in his own right, you know, people who don't know, ch- check him out. I mean, he's, he's written the books in bebop drumming, and he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a phenom. Uh, an amazing drummer and, and just a fantastic instructor. But he also studied with, he was a protege of Joe Morello, great drummer, Joe Morello. I had the good fortune, Len, of taking a um, master class once, a one-on-one with, with Joe Morello. And that was, that was a, a, a really a, a significant uh, inflection point in my relationship to the instrument. Mm. So, when you have a chance to have the experience of the music as you just described as a listener or to be able to get inside the 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 core of the of who's who of the of the drumming world the jazz drumming world as a, as a student as a learner as a professional drummer this is as good as it gets right now for jazz you know the the, the days of of being able to access this stuff readily it's it's not there anymore. Yeah, maybe it will be because, and in in a different way because I I I think I, I mentioned this to you before, but I went to see Kamasi Washington, who's yes. an incredible. For me, I think he's an incredible sax player, and he played with Thundercat. He's an incredible bass player, and the, and then the, and there's other there's other musicians, young musicians, uh, uh, Tom Mish, who uh, who's a guitar player. But he plays with a great uh, drummer too, and it's it's jazz, it's jazz influenced music, but it's sort of getting to pop a little bit. And when I started looking around the audience, I'm like, 
okay, there's some old heads there, a lot, but there's a bunch of young people. And I think that there's a crossover that's happening now with some of these younger musicians. They're drawing people to uh, to jazz because to me, jazz is not, um, how do I say this? It, it There's so many different versions of jazz that it, it's not 100%. Like it doesn't put you in just one lane. All right, big band, or I listen to free or something or bebop. There's so many different versions of that. And I think people get pigeonholed when they say, oh, jazz, ah, you know, I, I don't like my, my friend does this. I don't like the meandering, you know, when they, when they do solos and Miles Davis free. I'm like, but that's just one little sliver. There's so much more. And I think that having these younger musicians coming in and, and reinterpreting what people believe jazz is, maybe that'll start, uh, you know, getting a, a, a different kind of uh, vibe with jazz and and introducing jazz to a new audience, I hope. I hope you're right. Uh, I, you know, there there are pockets of of what you're describing happening. There are some phenomenal young musicians. Uh, Alexa Tarantino uh, plays alto and flute in our band. I think I don't I don't know how old Alexa is, but she's late twenties, maybe. Yeah. And and she, but she's amazing. She's amazing, and she's got a vo- a jazz vocabulary. You know, like what you'd expect from, you know, uh, uh, some old jazz guy from, you know, 1945. She knows the vocabulary. She knows the whole thing. So a lot of young players today are aware of the of the legacy. Uh, And they have that in their education. You know, that's what they get in the in the in the music school. What they don't necessarily get is the um the marinating uh in 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 the in the in the pocket hmm. to the same degree as you know the, the the generation or two ago that's a different story so you have a lot of super technically great players but it's not the same vibe it's it's a yeah. completely different vibe also also in in uh uh in music and jazz today there's a bit of an emphasis um on complex time signatures and complexity mm-hmm. and to the point that you just raised about your buddy that said meandering solos <laughs> you know one of the things that we do with the with the verb jazz ensemble is you know and it's my band so i can make this decision we, you know unless we're playing live there's no meandering Th- those solos it's it's 16 measures it's 32 measures it's a chorus it's two choruses that's it and it's we, but when we record, we record with the listener in mind to say, okay, get to the point. Yeah. Get to the point. Musically, make your point, hand it back. Yeah. Keep moving. But, but you're giving the space to solo, but you're giving that space to solo within a certain framework. Does that affect the improvisational uh, conversation between the players? No, it just means that you have to get to the point. Yeah. <laughs> just just get there at that time, but how you get there is your choice kind of thing. Right? As, as, my, as my instructor once said to me, he said, when you're playing a piece of music that's got a lot going on, think about what you got to think about so that you're ready when you get there. Huh. Well, that, that makes sense. Hey, you, you know, I, drumming in general, just, just music... It, I have a friend of mine who, who's a drummer and he always tells me because we always talk about 
who are the greatest drummers? We have these conversations. I love lists and I know it's, it's based on somebody's taste, but there are certain drummers who don't do a lot of fills, but they're solid. They're great drummers and they have a certain sound that you can tell is theirs. Like, I, I don't know, like John Bonham versus I'm, I'm a, you know, bringing up rock guy. So it's, uh, it's maybe not the same, but like, John Bonham versus like a Ginger Baker or a Neil Peart. Like you have a completely different style, like the complexity that Neil would play. And then and, and he also sings and, and he, he will play is and, and Ginger where he's got a, I think he's got a jazz uh, drumming background and then compare that to the power of uh, what John does. Like how can you even compare like one drummer against another because they're all so different and some of them do the fills and do the, you know, go off on the tangent. Some of them kind of stick to the rhythm. So I, I don't know what your, your th- I don't know. If you, I'm not sure if I'm even asking the right question on there, but uh, hopefully yeah, well, you know where I'm trying to go with that. My comment would be that every really good musician, we'll talk about drummers, has his or her own particular style. Or voice, uh, you know, Joe Jones, the, the great Joe Papa Joe Jones said, you know, give me a pair of brushes and a telephone book, and I could swing a big man. <laughs> right? That yeah. was, that was the way they that was that was his approach. Buddy Rich, somebody said, hey, buddy, how do you prepare, you know, for a for a a, a show? And Buddy said, I take my hands out of my pockets. <laughs> so there's a different there's going to be a different approach if you listen to a joe jones or a buddy rich or a joe morello or an art blakey or an elvin jones or um you know art taylor or some of the lesser known sidemen guys that are amazing but but the point is every one of them it has components of what they play that are beautiful, that are elegant, that are really hip, that are very musical. Some may have better chops than others. Some may have better feel than others, right? You, you know, you listen to um, uh, Ed Thigpen. That's a name you may not know. So Ed Thigpen, I'm, I'm talking, now I'm getting into you know, drum, drummer stuff now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Ed Thigpen was the drummer with Oscar Peterson. And Ed Thigpen was the guy in his trio forever, and his brushwork was ridiculous. Now, you know, today it's, um, um, uh, God, I, I, I want to I come up with some better examples. Um, it's eluding me. I'll get back to it. But uh-huh. Ed Thigpen, back in the day, his brushwork was amazing. And that was what he did. That was what he was known for. If you listen to Joe Morello, Joe's technique was, it, it was as good as Buddy's. And he played very, very odd time signatures because Dave Brubeck was into odd time signatures. Yeah. And, and Joe uniquely could do that. So, and then you listen to Buddy and Buddy could tear, tear the house down with a solo where you listen to Art Blakey and Blakey's stuff was just raw power. He might not have been the most technically amazing drummer, but his his drive and his groove was unstoppable. 
et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So if you listen to every drummer, you will hear whether it's Neil Peart or Ginger Baker or Buddy or Joe or whoever. There's something amazing about all of it. And that's what you have to appreciate as a listener of music. I, I, I love what you just said because everybody has their own style and it's so unique, but I, I don't think people listen to music that way anymore. Maybe people who listen to jazz music do. They, they some, because you have the opportunity to go out and, uh, and uh, also, you know, solo a little bit. But when you're listening to uh, a band uh, play, you're not really listening to all the instruments. I, I went to see a band this weekend called the Polyrhythmics. I don't know if you ever heard of them, but they're a, a jazz funk group. Cool. Man, fantastic players, everybody. And they had a horn section. Their drummer was amazing. So good. But I was concentrating on, on him because I understood the complexity of what they were trying to do. And you had to keep everybody you know, on, on point. And he, it's not an easy thing to, to do, but I would say probably 90% of the people there were just, they were listening to the, you know, the horns play and they were listening to the, the guitar solo and all that stuff, but they weren't really paying attention to how difficult it was for the drummer in the rhythm section to keep uh, going back and forth out of that groove. So it, it's, that's that style, style-wise, uh, I think it makes a lot of sense. We just said everybody has their own. And I think people... Like I went to see uh, Black Sabbath in their uh, last concert before they uh, before they sort of retired, and let's see what happens w- with that. But they go off stage and they have their drummer play a solo, and the solo that he's playing is long, and he plays more, and it's the faster he gets and the harder he gets. And then my buddy, who was a drummer, he's like, "That's not hard to do." What he's doing is not hard. You slow that down and you do the fills and the grooves. So are we looking at drumming through tainted eyes in a way and judging it that way? Is that, you know, a couple of, couple of comments. So first of all, thank you for that description because it was, it was really, it was great. You know, drumming has many, many different levels, Len. And when you're performing and your job is to be the rhythm of the of the of the of the band and you've got to ground it and keep it together you just want to play the simple stuff great now what i just said is a mouthful you want to play the simple stuff but you want to play it great yeah and that gives everybody the comfort the foundation to do what they got to do is that showy the, the no but the musicians like that's a drummer i want to play with because that locks everything in right? Getting to the solo part of the, of the experience, the, the audience typically, uh, you know, it's pyrotechnics that gets everybody going. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Wild, fast cymbals, crashes, but somebody who knows the instruments like, it's like, "Ah, okay, you know, okay, fine. You know, the audience is screaming, but you know, anybody could really do that after about two years of practice on the drums. I'm not knocking it, but that's not the deal. On the other hand, you start playing some sophisticated, you know, stuff technique wise, you know, Vinnie Caliuta, Buddy, you know, Joe Morello technique, stuff, chops, Elvin. T- the audience typically doesn't even know what's going on. Woo! So right. they do it, you know, and people are ordering another drink. You don't want that. Yeah. Not to say that 
Ever with Buddy because Buddy would Buddy could captivate. He, yeah, he, he can. He can. He would, yeah, well, you have to have a little bit of showmanship. I think there are so many amazing drummers that fly under the radar because they're in the back and uh, they're just keeping. But nobody's paying attention. And there's other ones like a Travis Barker who actually gets himself in the front, or you know, Tommy Lee. Once again, I'm, I'm using uh, rock drummers because that's that's my my framework. But they want to be the star. And they do it through that, you know, let me, let me show you how fast I can drum. And it, it doesn't really, if you understand, it doesn't really say that. Great. I was, when I was in high school, uh, no, when I was in junior high school, the kids would say, oh, you're a drummer. Can you play Wipeout? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And Wipeout. <laughs> yeah. Anybody could play that. Right. And I was like, yeah, big deal. Wipeout, right? Yeah, but Wipeout, you can play what? Okay, so it's it's a it's an audience thing. You know? Yeah, music education. Um, all right, so let's go back to the the Verve Jazz Ensemble. What 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 kind of music does the Verve Jazz Ensemble play? I, I know it's jazz, obviously, but like, what are the influences? Is there different types of uh, you know big band type of bebop? We are grounded in uh, the hard bop era. Okay, so hard bop, you think of Blakey, uh, you'd think of Philly Joe Jones, you'd think of uh, the late 50s, that that era of, of, of jazz, right? And that's sort of our grounding. So straight ahead, ding, 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 and Latin, you know, Afro-Cuban stuff, 6-8, okay. Afro-Cuban, and straight ahead. We formed the group originally as a quintet, front of tr- uh, trombone, excuse me, uh, tenor saxophone and trumpet and a rhythm section, five-piece. And then we later added a trombone and a uh, an alto sax flute doubler huh. to seven pieces. So our group is now seven pieces, but for the first, I don't know, five or so albums, I think we were a quintet. So we're rooted in that sort of straight ahead, hard bop, uh, Latin kind of a space. But our influence is uh, very varied, Len. We are uh, very interested in music that is not uh, readily exposed to listeners. So we like what we call side B classics yeah we're always hunting for those amazing songs that were that are sort of the 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 second tier that didn't get enough space but really Mm. deserved it we we very much like those kinds of tunes and then we reinterpret them through our own lens it's more of a contemporary sound we don't sound like we were recording in 1958 but we are influenced by that kind of a vibe so that in rough terms yeah. that's our approach yeah like b-sides and deep cuts so you know that that's one of my favorite eras of jazz do you play like is it is it charlie parker miles like max roach uh, type of uh uh songs that no charlie parker stuff that's that's just bebop so we yeah we, we do have occasionally some bebop influence but no we've never actually played any charlie parker stuff I think we've played one or two of Miles's tunes uh, over the years. We've definitely played um, uh, some uh, Max Roach. 
uh, stuff. I love Max. Max Max's musicality was was uh, absolutely fabulous. Um, so yes, to, to Max. But we also play a lot of contemporary stuff. The album that we just released mm-hmm. uh, focused on jazz, even from the 1970s. Uh, Toshiko Akiyoshi and the Lou Tobacken big band. They had a recording in the 70s that we we took a tune out of called Studio J, and we reinterpreted that. Uh, we have uh, taken stuff out of the George Shearing uh, book, the great pianist George yeah. Shearing. A lot of beautiful tunes from there. Um, we take we've taken a couple of tunes from Neil Hefty. Uh, Hefty, uh, he of the uh, he was the writer of the the theme to the Odd Couple. He wrote uh, the theme to the Batman television show, but. Hefty was also a writer for the uh, Count Basie big band in the 1950s and wrote most of their book, right? People don't know. Who's Neil Hefty? What? Did you ever hear of Batman? Yeah. Da, 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 da. Well, he wrote that song, right? Batman. Do you, so you do a jazz uh, version of the Batman theme? No, I, I don't know that I would. I don't know that I'd have the chutzpah to handle that one. <laughs> but, but we, did, but we did play the theme to the Odd Couple on this album. That's cool. That's very cool. Um, so I, w- I was going to ask you, since you just mentioned Max Roach, you brought up a, a bunch of players. Uh, who are some of your biggest, you already mentioned them, but I just want to ask them as a question. Who are some of your biggest influences uh, in, in music? Well, believe it or not, I'm, I'm influenced heavily by non-drummers. Uh, I played alto saxophone when I was in, in high school. So one of the things that that makes I, I think makes me a little different is, as a drummer is that I also played uh, a, a, a melodic instrument. So I don't just hear music through a percussive lens. I hear it as uh, a, a a horn player as well, right? So uh, I've been very influenced by many horn players and many many more pianists. Uh, I could listen to Red Garland, uh, the amazing Red Garland, uh, as a pianist. I could listen to four hours a day of Red Garland. You know, sometimes I literally just put my my Spotify channel and I hit just Red Garland. I'll, I'll listen to Red play all day long. You know, um, so I I very much love to listen to uh, instrumentalists from a drumming perspective, heavily influenced by. Uh, Joe Morello, I have the utmost respect for, for, for Joe's technique, uh, just not to be described. Um, you know, I've been influenced to a degree by um, Blakey, uh, by Max Roach, uh, Philly Joe Jones. I've spent a lot of time uh, uh, looking at Philly's, uh, uh, Philly Joe's soloing and really working with that um, um, uh, vocabulary. Uh, his stuff is phenomenal. And, you know, uh, Buddy loved Philly Joe Jones's playing. Um, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, uh, Buddy wanted Philly Joe to be his, his fill-in drummer if he couldn't make a show. He, he wow. thought that highly of, of Philly Joe. So Philly Joe, Blakey, uh, Morello, to some degree, uh, Buddy Rich. But, you know, Buddy, Buddy was in his own category. You know, you could yeah. look at Buddy. And learn a lot of stuff. He, he, I have, I have a, I have in my in my drum shed. I have one sign hanging up facing facing me uh, on the kit, Len, and it says, uh, "A drum solo has a beginning, 
a middle and a bitch of an ending. Buddy Rich. <laughs> I love that, man. Um, in uh, and, and Gene Krupa, since you, uh, you know, you, you're, you reminded your, your instructor of, uh, of Krupa. I want to bring this up in, in, in a way. I'm, I'm trying to think of the best way to, to, uh, to bring this up because we talk about cannabis on my show a lot and the, and jazz, jazz musicians were, uh, you know, the, one of the main reasons why cannabis was illegal in our, or was legal in our country and still, you know, kind of is was because, you know, Mexican farm workers were providing marijuana to the jazz musicians and their, their white, uh, daughters. Then they didn't want them to mingle with the black jazz musicians, etc. Is that, is there still a culture of uh, cannabis use in the in the jazz uh, oh, yeah. uh, space? Oh, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. You know, yeah. you have you have to sometimes say, "Fellas, fellas, fellas." You know, you know. It's so yes, that that's, that's there's absolutely. a fine line between it's motivating your performance to where it can be a hindrance. Uh, I w- I would say that professional musicians have the responsibility of modulating their consumption of of alcohol and and uh, marijuana during recording performance and so forth um you know and let's be let's be honest you know as a band leader you 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 have to sort of say these are the rules and sometimes people are a little bit um uh looser about those rules but i think for the most part uh, it is a uh, um uh a part of the culture uh, there's, there's no taboo around it. It's just, it's, it is what it is. And I think people responsibly, uh, uh, uh use it. Cool. All right. So I have a question, uh, that I ask, uh, some of my guests, uh, and, and I'm going to preface this with, I know this answer can change because it changes for me on a daily uh, basis. So, uh, it's, it's capturing a moment in time. If you can only listen to five albums, uh, for the next year. And if you don't remember the name of the album, that's fine. It can just be the artist. But what would those uh, five albums uh, be? Or wow. Players? Wow. You, you should have set me up with a little bit of a note. <laughs> no, that's why I wanted to do it this way because it's a stream of consciousness. And that's why I said it changes on an ongoing basis. Well, whatever comes to mind uh, first. Like I said, it can be just a player. You can say, hey, it's uh, a Miles album or, you know, Foo Fighters, I don't know, whatever. I would, I so I would say, I would say uh, that I combine. I ha- I wouldn't go. I can't name albums particularly, but I'd have right. to players, and there would be a combination of things. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a there's a beautiful album with McCoy Tyner and Elvin Jones uh, that was recorded in early in the early '60s, and and. I, I feel like I have so much to learn from from both McCoy and and Elvin in in that space. Um, I think that there would be uh, at, le- at least one, as I said, okay. Red Garland. I'd find some, you know, one of the best of the best of the best Red Garland stuff because I just love the music. Um, there would have to be uh, at least one uh, Count Basie big band extravaganza somewhere because I, I love Basie's stuff. Um, I'm thinking about that. Um, 
may, maybe maybe a, a, a Philly Joe uh, and maybe a Blakey and may, maybe a Buddy, maybe a Joe. Okay. I, 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 that, I'm up to six. So I'm yeah. going to, I, <laughs> you I'm, won over. That's all right. I, I can't help myself. It's, it's, a, it's, a compila- it, it's a compilation album. It's got them all on. But it is. You know, I'm only a drummer. I can't decide. So, it, it's really hard. Yeah. I, I would, I'll stop there, but okay. I have to say that I'm, I'm, I'm like this. I can't do five. I know it's the, it's very hard. I know people ask me and I'm like, I don't know. It depends on my mood. I'll, I'll give you classic rock for this day. And then, Tomorrow I'll give you blues and jazz, so it's it's different every single time. Um, do you remember the very first concert that you ever attended? Yes, I do. What, what was that? Believe it or not, I was very young. I went with my father, and I saw Benny Goodman. Wow, wow, that's a good one. I, I, I nobody has said nobody has said Benny Goodman yet. That's that's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, since you play, I'm assuming that you pr- do you get to see shows like other uh, musicians uh, play as well? Not as often as I'd like. That's what I was going to ask. What was the last concert you attended? But I know musicians are so busy, they don't have a lot of time unless the they're last, playing a the festival. La- the, la- the last live performance I saw was I saw Pete Bernstein uh, play at the Village Vanguard. Okay. That's cool. And, and I um, had a chance to record with Pete. So he's actually a friend and he, he performed on one of our albums. And, and if anybody hasn't had a chance to see Pete Bernstein play with his group, go out and see Pete Bernstein. He's, he's awesome. Got it. All right. So bonus question uh, before I let you go and you can talk about, uh, you know, your band and, and uh, where can, people can find you. Um, please describe what your room looked like growing up. I had a drum set. In the middle of my room, I had a stereo with two speakers, Moran's speakers, right behind the drum set with the record player and the, and the, you know, the tape recorder was, this was, this was pre CDs and the headphones and the stack of albums and tapes and all that shit so that I had access to everything I needed to. And that was the center of my world right there. That That's was super cool, and and your parents were cool with that, you know. And they, but you know, I I I have a I have a an anecdote to share. So we lived in a three story um, uh, English Tudor in Bayside, and I I took I commandeered the third floor, so I had this room, and the drum set, and everything was on top of everybody else. And in all the years that I was practicing and playing in that house, Len, not once ever did anybody ever come into my room and say, play something for me. Wow. <laughs> they didn't need to. Yeah, you played enough. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, no posters in the walls or anything like that. I did. I had a, a, a big poster that fell off of a New York City bus. Mm. And it was the poster for the jazz... Uh, radio station, the FM jazz radio station in New York. And I believe it was WRVR was the, was the call sign. And I listened to WRVR all the time. I mean, that was, that was the 24 hour a day jazz uh, station. And there was a bus that had a WRVR poster on it. And the damn thing was falling off the bus as it went by. And I hit it and it fell onto the street and I grabbed it. I, I said, I got it. And I literally, I was a kid. I carried this piece of cardboard crap off, that fell off the bus 
and I hung it up on my wall in my room behind on the wall behind the drum set. Super cool. Love that. Uh, Josh, I want to thank you so much for being on. This is great. It got such an education. Where can people engage with you, uh, the Verve Jazz Ensemble, you know, get your content, get sure. your music, see you, uh, share with the audience, please. Thank you very much. Well, first of all, I've had a blast. You've, you've, you've jogged memories out of my brain that I've long since forgotten, Len. So thank you very much. And, and the conversation was, was mutually a lot of fun. Uh, so thank you again for having me. Um, Verve hyphen jazz.com. That's our website. And, uh, please visit, uh, put a name in if you want to be on the mailing list, Spotify, uh, Apple music, anywhere you can, you can get all of our uh, music streaming on all the major streaming services. Uh, all in is the eighth album that we've just released. It's, it's out now it's available. If uh, anybody's interested in picking up a copy or downloading it, uh, please do. We have a wonderful show coming up. Uh, we're performing at the um, Jazz uh, at Sunset uh, 2023 concert. That's going to be in Worcester, Massachusetts. Uh, and that is on August 25th uh, from 6 to 8 p.m., I think. It's sponsored by the uh, NPR affiliate WICN Radio and uh, the um, Hanover Theater. Uh, in Worcester. And it's going to be an outdoor event. There'll be somewhere between 500 and 700 people in attendance. And if anybody who's listening to this is in the neighborhood, buy a ticket and there's going to be a open bar and there's going to be food carts. It's going to be a blast. That's great. Yeah. Well, if you're ever in LA, playing in LA, I'd love to come see you guys play or maybe I'll travel and see you guys. It's a a promise. Cool. Thanks, Josh. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Lenny. Bye. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Are you looking for the next great cannabis business to invest in? Then you need to check out the MJ Bulls podcast. Hi, I'm Dan Humston. Join me each week as I speak to both cannabis entrepreneurs who are raising capital and cannabis investors who are investing capital. Our 10-minute episodes are perfect for the busy investor. Start listening to the MJ Bulls podcast today, wherever you listen to podcasts, and who knows, maybe you'll discover the next cannabis unicorn.